You're listening to episode 186 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Well, I hope you're enjoying your summer. It's been hot here in Missouri, but we're getting plenty of time on the water, lots of reading, and even some writing in over this summer break. I'm excited for today's conversation. Uh, I've had Scott Sauls on the podcast before and I've really appreciated his work. He was kind enough to give me an official endorsement for the five masculine instincts. And uh, he's always been somebody that I've turned to, particularly when it comes to pastoral input, how we approach topics as pastors. His blog has always been really helpful for that. He has a new book out just last month entitled Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, How God Redeems Regret, Hurt, and Fear in the Making of Better Humans. It's a really helpful conversation for pastors, those who walk with people through their pain, but really for any of us who experience difficulties in life, which turns out to be most of us. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Scott Sauls. He is Senior Pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Before serving in Nashville, he served with Tim Keller at New York's uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church as a lead and preaching pastor. And in addition to his writing of books, Scott's work has appeared in Christianity Today, Relevant Magazine, The Gospel Coalition, as well as many others. He joins me today to talk about a new book that he has out entitled Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, How God Redeems Regret, Hurt, and Fear in the Making of Better Humans. Well, Scott, it's a privilege to have you back on the podcast for a second time. I got a chance to read the book, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation about it. Thanks, Chase. Good to be with you. Well, I would love to hear a little bit about, uh, maybe as a starting point, the the, the language for the title of this book. Uh, it struck me when I got a copy that the language is beautiful people. Uh, what made you go with that language over, you know, uh, more Christian people or holy people or good people, this idea of beautiful people? Yeah, uh, it, it's pulled straight from a quote from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, and the full quote provides the, the bigger context. Um, and she she talks about how the most remarkable people that she's met are people who've uh, known defeat and struggle and trial and emerged from those seasons uh, as those who uh, are... Uh, exceptional at uh, empathizing, at showing up for others, and so on. And, um, you know, that's all a paraphrase, but the the last sentence of that longer excerpt is beautiful people don't just happen. And so when we were um, kind of looking at the books, my book's content, and um, just batting around uh, thoughts and ideas for titles, that one uh, stood up above all the rest not only because of, of the, the words themselves that make up the title, but the context uh, that Kubler-Ross's quote provided. Because it's a book about um, regret and hurt and fear and uh, how God you know, uses those experiences in our lives to bring about redemption, renewal, uh, and ultimately an inner beauty uh, that, that is shaped uh, through those things, as Paul talks about in Romans 5, for example. Well, as a pastor myself, I know one of the things that is both one of the difficulties of pastoring, but can also be one of the joys is you you get this front row seat to this whole human experience of pain and all of its varying forms that people go through. And there is a sense that as you're walking as a pastor with people through those, it sort of it, it exposes you to it, but also shapes you in the process as well. And 
what struck me was how full of stories this book is drawn from your pastoral experience. And I wonder how that kind of front row seat to other people's pain has shaped you as a pastor, but then also just as a believer yourself. Well, you know, I think that it, it confirms over time, um, you know, the more we witness God's work in our own lives and in other people's lives, uh, you know, taking uh, something that, that maybe somebody without the Lord would respond to with maybe less hope, maybe more cynicism uh, and bewilderment. And yet, you know, there's something about the gospel and being tethered to Jesus and uh, knowing him as the suffering servant and um, leaning into the reality that almost every book of the Bible was written by somebody who was dealing with some form of regret or hurt or fear. Um, and then you see it all play out in the lives of of the people right in front of you about how, you know, somebody can receive a, a cancer diagnosis and and be upset about it and struggle out loud about it, but also not fall into despair. Um, you know, there's just this simultaneous companionship, I guess it seems in, in believing people uh, of, of hurt and hope. Um, and, you know, of, of, you know, it's like that uh, old George Matheson hymn uh, where he, he talks about a joy that seeks us through pain um, and, you know, I've gotten to see that, see that, experience that over and over and over again through the years. And, and, you know, I can't help but have my own faith strengthened when I see, you know, maybe somebody who's about to die uh, be the most engaged, uh, energized person in the sanctuary when our church sings it as well with my soul, for example. And so, you know, the book is, um, it's not really a book about suffering per se. Uh, I think it gets mislabeled or mischaracterized in that way. Some ways it's, it's more of a, uh, it's meant to be kind of a, 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 a pastor's companion, um, you know, of, like you said, anecdotes and, um, you know, biblical reflections on how God loves to show up for us and, and draw us out of, you know, things like shame and self-loathing uh, on the regret side of things. Things like, you know, despair and a sense of isolation, like we're all alone in the world in the way that he shows up for us in our in our hurt. Um, you know, as one who walks alongside us, is not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Uh, and, and also as a God who loves to show up for us uh, when we're anxious and restless about, about what might lie ahead for us. And, you know, he's reminding us that because of resurrection, our long-term worst case scenario is always resurrection and everlasting life you know the best days are always yet to come and so i hope the book can just it can be a, a companion to those who show up for others and and also a, a ministry to those who are walking through their own experiences of regret or hurt or fear or some combination of those things that's how i read it too it, it what comes across to me um certainly there's moments of suffering that are covered in the book but it really is a kind of cataloging of these these human experiences that we often consider difficult or challenging in various ways and how god can actually use those very things towards good 
Um, the other thing that struck me about the book, because I've read quite a few of your other works, is um, this book is really personal for you. You draw from a lot of your own personal challenges, stories around you. Um, when was the sense that this is part of what this book was going to be, that it was going to be sort of opening up on some of your own struggles and challenges? Certainly, you've done that in other books, but here it seemed like there was a level of intentionality with that. Yeah, before I started writing, and it was very intentional. Um, you know, one of, one of the one of the um, well, a couple of people that have had profound impact on me over the years are um, are Brennan Manning and Henry Nowen, uh, both of whom you know come from the Catholic tradition, and I, I think both of whom really um, you know understood and communicated well the the wounded healer aspect of of who Christ is. And how, you know, is there, is there space in, in the world of books for maybe a reformed uh, uh, version of, of the kinds of things that now and, uh, and, and Manning put out there uh, for people. And so this is my best effort to kind of write my own version of that kind of, of book, um, you know, with, with, with the hope that it would be a resource to help contribute to people's healing process. I'm curious as a pastor, I know one of the things that early on for me was somewhat of a challenge was you're, you're in people's lives all week long. You know, you know what people are going through the pain and the discouragement and sometimes the, the, the suffering of sin and its consequences. And then you sort of, you know, leave the hospital or leave one of those conversations and you're at your own kids, little league game, or you're, you know, at a birthday party at home. And, um, for me, it never worked as a as a pastor to sort of imagine it as a job. This was more than just a job for me. There was something about who I was that was in it. But I also recognized really soon I, it wasn't fair to bring all of that home into my relationships, you know, my kids, my family. Is there a way that you as a pastor have learned to walk that, to be present with people in their suffering and pain, but also to recognize that at the end of the day, you know, some of that you can't carry home. You can't can't live your spiritual life just out of other people's brokenness as well, too. Yeah, <laughs> you're talking about uh, a degree of compartmentalization, I suppose, uh, for those of us who are in ministry. Uh, it, it can be quite a challenge, right? Because, you know, we, 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 preach, we preach it because we believe it, that the church is not a club. It's not a, um, you know, a consumer good. Uh, it's not even a neighborhood it's, it's, it's even more than a community. It's, it's actually a family. If you look at the, all the different metaphors that the scriptures use to describe the church, you, you see words like brother and sister and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and, and, you know, Jesus calling his followers, my little children and all of that. And so if the church is a family, um, you know, it, 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 it feels very unnatural to, compartmentalize, um, you know, in a way that maybe a psychiatrist might compartmentalize um, time with his or her clients uh, versus time with our congregants who are also our spiritual family. Uh, And yet there is a certain, um, you know, uh, a certain wisdom that we have to figure out for ourselves of, of, you know, what, what does it mean for, you know, the, the pastoral needs of the people of God to integrate with the life of our family, with of our nuclear family, without replacing uh, uh, the life of our nuclear family, which should be distinct, right? Because God has set up essentially three 
institutions, the nuclear family and the, the church family, and then, um, then government. And, um, you know, and the, the first two, it's very easy to enmesh one with the other. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's actually the healthy and right and most life-giving thing to, to uh, really tether yourself uh, and to, for your family to be tethered to the concerns of the people of God. But, um, but yeah, there is a, there are boundaries, you know, in the same way that parents have to set boundaries with their kids. And, um, you know, maybe in some cases, kids have to, to set with, with their siblings or with their parents, um, you know, uh, in order to be individuals. And, and so I don't know, I I think, I think ministry, it, it kind of takes a lifetime to figure out that whole balance if that makes sense yeah i think i remember um reading eugene peterson once uh he put as he often put things in sort of stark simplicity he said at one point that um it's not the pastor's job to fix people but then Mm -hmm. elsewhere i remember him saying that the pastor's role is to step into a situation and say god which you know is a simplified way of saying that you're involving yourself in the complexity of people's lives to remind them and help them have an awareness for what God might be doing in those places that you don't bear the responsibility of fixing that pain or fixing that problem, but to help them see how God is at work, which is what I think, I think your book does really, really well is try to bring awareness to how God is at work in those places. Well, I appreciate it. I, I, that's, that's the hope. And, and, uh, you know, I'm glad that's your, that's your take and experience of, of my words and stories. Uh, I hope that's the case for others as well. You made an interesting uh, structural decision in that the book is, it took me a little, actually a couple chapters to recognize the book is all prologues except for the last chapter, which I'll get to, but um, you have a really interesting reason for doing that, which is um, kind of a philosophical reason for why you frame chapters as prologues. Maybe you could unpack that for people picking up the book. Yeah, it really traces back to C.S. Lewis's brilliant, um, uh, you know, ending to, the Narnia Chronicles, and this is after Aslan, who is, of course, the Christ figure, uh, comes back from the dead, and, you know, you've got this whole new, renewed world of Narnia inaugurated with the second coming of Aslan, and, you know, C.S. Lewis's final reflection um, is that, um, you know, at that point, when Aslan returned, and, and he inaugurated what what Lewis calls an everlasting spring. Um, he says the, the children realized that every bit of their lives that they had been living up to that point was all prologue and that their true, truest and fullest life was only now beginning. And that's the story that picture uh, that, that scripture paints for us. Uh, and, and that's the picture that scripture gives to us, uh, and that is that the life that we're living now is a fallen life. Uh, we're, you know, the kingdom of God has come. Uh, you know, Christ has come. The Holy Spirit has been sent. Uh, we have hope living inside of us because of the gospel and because of the promise of the future resurrection and glory. And yet, we're not there yet. Uh, we're still stuck with this conflict between the old man and the new man, the flesh and the spirit, uh, and so on. And, and so there is a very real sense in which um, our lives are, are, are prologue um, currently uh, in that we, we have not uh, come to experience the abundant life to the fullest degree uh, yet. And uh, we have not 
become fully like Jesus because we have seen him as he is, as it's promised to us in the new heaven and the new earth yet. Um, and so, um, so all of this life that we're living right now in, in, in some respects is, is preparatory for the everlasting fullness that will come to us in what I call in the book, chapter one and only, uh, which would be the life that God created us to live that will be ours forever in the new heaven and the new earth upon the return of Christ. I think that's such a powerful image, this idea of life as prologue, that all of this life is the con- opening context for for what is to come. Um, just a really powerful image um, from Lewis, but obviously from you and the way you frame the book, too. <laughs> Um, I did want to get into a couple of the the specific topics. As you had mentioned before, it's not just a book on suffering. There's some very specific experiences you try to work through in the book. And uh, one of those is the experience of shame and regret and our tendency to hold on to those things. You use the image of a birdcage that we can actually be sort of locked inside of this shame and regret. Maybe you could unpack that from the book. Well, I open the, I open the book with, um, uh, you know, a, a sentence that, is meant to be jarring uh, to the reader. Uh, first words of the book are "You suck," and <laughs> it's, it's put in quotation marks. And if you continue reading, you'll see that these are words that I spoke out loud to myself uh, while walking alone in one of Nashville's uh, lovely parks. And um, it just kind of spontaneously came out of my mouth. Um, because a memory of something that had happened in high school, which for me was well over 30 years ago, uh, came to mind where I, where I basically said something unkind to uh, a girl in my class uh, when I was, I think, a sophomore. And um, I've just, I've never quite fully gotten over um, the words that came out of my mouth that were humiliating to her and that I, you know, I spoke them in order to get a laugh from the class and um i've just always regretted uh you know doing that uh but that that whole that whole you know moment in the park is just an illustration of how we we hold on to our regrets um sometimes for a lifetime we 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 have such a hard time letting go of them uh we hold on to them maybe like a sponge holds on to water and and yet we um, we allow the the grace and mercy and pronouncements of adoption and belovedness that God has pronounced over us to be squeezed out like water gets squeezed out of a sponge, but somehow that sponge retains things like guilt and shame. And so, you know, as Martin Luther famously said, uh, this is why we need uh, to preach the gospel to ourselves or have the gospel preached to us every single day because we forget it every single day. One of those other topics is the topic of anxiety, which um, I think anybody paying attention right now knows that all the studies are pointing out that the experience of anxiety is growing. Um, it's becoming uh, really a challenge across all age groups. Uh, many of us have been experiencing it in new ways, perhaps, over the last few years. Uh, it's one of the topics you tackle in the book as well, too, is this rising experience of anxiety and, and what we're supposed to be doing with it. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the nature of the anxiety. It depends on the reasons for it. Um, you know, there are there are biological causes to anxiety that um, you know merit the services of 
psychiatrists who can, you know, help us discern um, if there might be some medical solutions and helps to to anxiety, or uh, our anxiety can be uh, purely circumstance based, um, which I think is one of the ways that the gospel becomes an incredible resource because, you know, again, as I've already said, um, you know, anxiety is about an imagined worst case scenario that that's currently hypothetical. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. Um, and yet we have this scenario about the future in our, in our heads that, um, that can consume us, uh, with, you know, this, this emotion, uh, called anxiety. And, um, you know, I can get into a a lot of stuff, you know, from the scriptures concerning this, uh, you know, everything from how the words do not fear, uh, you know, make up the most repeated command in the whole Bible. Um, and, and it's repeated 365 times. You know, some people say, well, maybe that's God saying you need to hear it once every day of the year. Um, and the reason is because he's with you and for you. And, and that if you're a Christian, you're always living in hope because the future is always bright. Um, but uh but yeah i talk i talk a good bit uh, especially toward the end of the book about how the future is fixed it is set it will not be revised or edited uh and it's really really bright uh it's kind of like um you know looking at our lives you know as if we are at halftime uh uh you know in a game where we're 50 points behind and it 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 feels like there's no prospect for us to win uh, except we've recorded the game and somebody's already told us the result that we've made the most miraculous comeback in the history of, of sports. And we end up winning the game on a buzzer shot. And so if you're at halftime and you're down by 25 points, but you know what the end is going to be, um, you're okay with it. You're not screaming at your TV. Uh, you're not, um, you know, leaving the room every 10 seconds when the other team gets a slam dunk. Um, because you know, uh, that in the end, uh, all is going to be well, and you're going to be on the winning side. And 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 that really is a, a metaphor for the gospel uh, in reality that, um, you know, even if we feel way, way behind, uh, maybe sunk in guilt and shame or sunk in some set of circumstances or, or, or you know, just buried with, with um, uh, you know, concern about how we're going to make it. Um, that that promise is fixed. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote about it, the weight of glory. Um, you know, the last two chapters of Revelation, uh, you know, unpack it in detail about how, you know, the old order of things will have passed away and everything will be made new when Christ returns uh, and how every day will be getting better than the day before because he's continually making all things new. Uh, and so, I don't know, if, if we live in light of eternity, um, and, and, um, you know, if, if, if the life to come becomes a regular part of how we process the life that we're living now, um, it can't help, but at least speak loudly to, uh, to our circumstance based, uh, anxieties and fears. That seems to be the pattern that emerges from the book as you're dealing with these different human experiences or experiences of brokenness in various ways. 
what you seem to be doing is calling people to say, how in the midst of those experiences do you pull in something of what you have in the future, some sense of God's goodness and awareness that begins to change that situation you find yourself in in the moment? Is that at the core level of dealing with these broken challenges? So whether it's regret or hurt or fear, is, is that the primary idea? It is. And, you know, in one of his, in one of his commentaries, uh, N.T. Wright says that hope is imagining God's future into uh, the present uh, set of circumstances that we're living. And I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, you know, there, there's going to be some kind of cloud that is hanging over us. Uh, it's either going to be the cloud of doom or the cloud of hope uh, when we're going through trials. And the, the cloud of hope replaces the cloud of doom uh, when we remember not only a past uh, where Christ, you know, has has died and risen and promised his return, but that we remember the future, uh, that, that because Christ uh, miraculously rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and had over 500 eyewitnesses to verify it and, and gave precious promises about how he will return um, and make all things new, we have the resources for a future imagination um, that, that, um, that can uh, and maybe I dare say ought to shed light on how we um, are able to endure whatever curveballs this life throws at us. It always helps to have a believing community around you to help you in these things. One of those tangible ways that you describe doing this or putting that into the practice, you write in the book about the practices of abiding and beholding. Uh, maybe you could take a moment to describe those words. Well, abiding in Christ is, um, you know, it really just amounts to intentionality about being with him. And, you know, as, as the Apostle Paul wrote, demolishing false thoughts, pretentious thoughts um, with true thoughts. Um, you know, he says, we demolish these strongholds that set themselves up in pretense against the knowledge of God. And we, we take captive uh, every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And, um, you know, it's, it's really beautiful the way that he speaks so forcefully uh, about preaching grace to ourselves. It's not like he's shaming and scolding us. He's actually, he's actually trying to motivate us to preach grace to ourselves. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty wonderful how, you know, some of the most forceful moments in scripture, um, uh, they're not, they're the furthest thing from shaming moments. They, they are, um, you know, you know, as if God himself is taking us by the shoulders and, and shaking us with a, um, with an affectionate, sympathetic um, smile on his face saying, see how loved you are. See how kept you are. See how bright your future is because of what I've done for you. Um, and uh you know, I, I think all of the Christian life, um, until we die, Chase, is, is learning how to access that uh, reality and those truths more and more and more so that they will preach the regret, hurt, and fear out of our hearts. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful picture of it. You, One of my favorite chapters in the book is uh, you write fondly about church basements. And as one who grew up in a church with a basement, uh, I know well <laughs> the church basement experience you're describing. Uh, what is it about church basements that you love? 
church basements. Uh, so in the context of the book, uh, I talk about how the church basement is often the place where uh, the recovery groups meet. And the recovery groups are obviously, um, you know, they're in solidarity with each other. They're all in recovery from some form of addiction or some sort of some form of suffering. And, um, and the, the power of recovery happens um, in light of two things. One, community. Um, you know, I love what C.S. Lewis once said that, you know, the way friends are made is that one person looks at another and says, you too, I thought I was the only one. And, and that's really what a recovery group is, is a bunch of people getting to, getting to experience again and again and again, sometimes every single night of the week, uh, that they are not alone. Uh, that they are at war uh, for sure uh, against their struggle or their addiction, but they are at war with fellow soldiers who are fighting the same addiction. And, and so that companionship, that community uh, is a wonderful metaphor for what the church I think is meant to be uh, as we fight things like sin and discouragement and things of that sort. Uh, The other common uh, thread uh, of what happens in the church basement in recovery groups is honesty, uh, uh, transparent honesty about what we're struggling with. I'm so-and-so and I share this addiction with everybody in the room and here are the details of that for me and I need help. And, uh, and everybody has a sponsor, which is basically somebody who's a little bit ahead of them uh, or maybe a lot ahead of them in the, the healing and recovery journey. Uh, to sort of coach them and come alongside them in the same way that the Holy Spirit comes alongside us in the same way we're meant to come alongside each other. And so the argument I'm trying to make in that particular section of the book is why would we not, because we have these gospel resources, uh, why would we not uh, work harder at bringing church basement dynamics into church sanctuaries um, where church, um, you know, is no longer known anywhere as the place where people hide their truth selves the most uh, in order to look shiny and bright and holy and together, which is often the case. Uh, And instead, the place where people bring their truest uh, selves and their truest experiences into the, um, you know, into the, into the family of God. Because I I, I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was Augustine. I, I can't remember, though, that the church is is a hospital uh, for sinners, not a museum for saints. And um, I think sometimes even non-believing recovery groups do the gospel better than church people do. Um, That's not to say they believe the gospel, but they do the gospel sometimes better than church people do. And so my argument there is because we do believe the gospel, um, what's stopping us from doing the gospel? so I could I could go on and on about that, but should probably what does it stop look like? Well, well, I'll ask you a practical question. What does it look like for a pastor who's listening, who's saying, "Okay, yes, I believe that," but what does it look like? You know, I've inherited this church that is primarily driven by the platform. You know, the worship experience on a Sunday morning. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of us show up at church and we talk. You know, the cardinal score from this week. We shake hands, talk about the weather. You know, there's not a whole lot of of truthfulness happening in those moments. What does it look like for a church to embrace or try to intentionally? construct a place where people can be honest about their brokenness? Well, I think it always starts with the leadership. Um, you know, the, the church will ultimately become a reflection 
of whoever its key leader is and whoever its key leaders are. And, and so there has to be a, a shared commitment among the key leaders of a church to go in that direction and uh, to do that work together. Uh, and then, you know, if you could, you know, envision a church as a concentric, a set of concentric circles where you've got the, you know, the inner core of maybe the pastoral team and then around them, the elders, and then around them, the, the most committed members and around them, um, you know, regular attenders uh, and around them, the community outside the church uh, to work your way from the center all the way out <clears throat> gradually, but it, you know, it takes time. Um, but you're never going to, you're, you're never going to establish a strong gospel centered church culture until you establish it in your, in your smaller pastoral and leadership community first. And so I would say first things first, um, don't, don't, don't try to, and, and of course, preach it, you know, uh, put it on display, uh, you know, from the pulpit and center it on Jesus uh, and um, pray that the Holy Spirit would do his good work. We've touched on it, I think, already in the conversation. But uh, again, it's such an important part of the structure of the book that I think it's a good place to wrap up. There's one chapter in the book. There's several chapters that are prologues, but there's what you label as one chapter, the end chapter. And it really has its focus on Revelation chapter 21. What is significant about that passage to you? uh, And why is it the right place to end the book? Well, it's the second to last chapter of the whole Bible. And I think Revelation 21 and 22, if, if the whole Bible has an exclamation point, it's those two chapters. And <clears throat> the clearest teaching in those two chapters is the first eight verses of chapter 21, where, um, you know, the Apostle John is given this apocalyptic vision of, of the future and of the new heaven and the new earth while he is... Um, he is uh, imprisoned uh, for his faith on the island of Patmos. And it talks about how uh, he sees ahead of him a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Um, And he hears a loud voice from the throne of God saying, behold, I am making all things new. And so that's the picture of Jesus and the bride of Christ, which is the church. Um, in, in, in the fullest and everlasting, uh, form of their union together. And when Jesus says, I am making all things new, this is where, you know, having studied New Testament Koine Greek comes in handy. Um, because if you look at the Greek, you'll see that, that the, that the, the literal translation of those words from Jesus is that he can, he will continue to make all things new. Um, in other words, he will never stop in glory in the new heaven and the new earth in chapter one and only, um, in, in our resurrected future state, Jesus will never stop making everything new, including us. Um, you know, right now we live in a world where everything's the opposite of that. You know, the second law of thermodynamics, as the physicists tell us, applies to everything. Everything's falling apart. The sun is losing energy all of the time. Um, everything in creation is subject to decay as, um, as, we're, as we're taught. 
uh, in Scripture. Uh, Romans chapter 8, all creation is groaning. Well, uh, not only will that groan be taken away, but Jesus will replace it by everlasting newness. So so imagine, like I'm, I'm 54 years old now, Chase, and I, I feel the body pains. I can't run as fast as I used to. Uh, my body won't do the same things it used to do on the basketball court or the tennis court or the golf course. Um, you know, I, I am winding down slowly but surely as everybody is. <clears throat> but if you could imagine an experience where you're simultaneously growing younger, not older, growing stronger, not weaker, growing smarter, not dumber, um, you know, growing wiser, not more foolish, um, you know, growing deeper in all of your relationships with God and people every single day, forever and ever and ever for infinite days, world without end. Um, that's the future that, that's promised to every one of us. Uh, and, uh, you know, every one of us in Christ, every one of us who trusts in Jesus uh, with, a, with a strong faith or a weak faith, that is the future. And, um, you know, the, the degree to which we can lay hold of that in our hearts, the degree to which the Holy Spirit is pleased to enable that and empower that and to sustain that in us, um, is the degree to which we are able to have joy and poise and um, other-centeredness and um, the diminishment of regret and guilt and shame and fear and worry and all of these other things that plague us uh, is directly tied I believe to the degree to which we can can lay hold of the things that aren't ours yet, but the things that we have been told by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords uh, that are most certainly ours, and that nothing and no one will ever be able to take them away from us. Well, I think it's such a powerful image and uh, helps understand what you're doing with the book. Again, the book we've been talking about: "Beautiful People Don't Just Happen: How God Redeems Regret." hurt and fear in the making of better humans. Certainly that sense of redeeming this ongoing renewal that begins now, but for all eternity. Um, Scott, really fascinating book. I'm so thankful to have had an opportunity to read it. Um, I, I know you also do some blogging. I follow you and always have helpful pastoral advice as well, too. What's the best way people can just keep up with the work you're doing, perhaps pick up a copy of the book and just uh, follow follow all the help you're putting out? Well, thank you, uh, Chase. You know, the book is... Um pretty much anywhere um, where books are available, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Christian books, your local bookstore. Um, and uh, you can also find pretty much all of my work at scottsauls.com. Uh, and that includes the church that I uh, get to serve in uh, Nashville as senior pastor called Christ Presbyterian Church. So if you're in or around the Nashville area on a Sunday, come see us. Love to meet you. We'll definitely pick up a copy of the book. I think you'll find it helpful, but uh, also it's one of those books I think you'll find yourself as a pastor wanting to to hand out to others. Uh, it really is an encouragement for people going through all sorts of situations. And Scott, again, just appreciate you taking the time to write the book, to do the conversation, and your transparency in the book. I think it was really uh, encouraging and refreshing to read. Thanks so much, Chase. It's really kind of you to have me on again. Thank you.
You can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com. You'll find a link to the book that we've been talking about, as well as Scott's uh, website. You can follow his blog there. You can also leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast. Wherever you're listening to podcasts, leave a starred rating or maybe type out a few words. And if you haven't had a chance to pick up The Five Masculine Instincts, I would love for you to take a look at it. You can learn more about it at thefivemasculineinstincts.com, including a free online assessment to start learning a little bit more about the instincts. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. 